Hello and welcome to episode 29 of my Leaders of the American Civil War podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion of General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson. In episode 28, we concluded with Jackson's army routing Nathaniel Banks's army in Winchester, Virginia on May the 25th of 1862. Banks's army threw down their weapons and gear and in a route similar to that of First Bull Run, made their way pell-mell across the Potomac River to the safety of the Union lines. As this happened, much of Washington was panicked that Jackson might follow Banks across the Potomac and stage an attack on the U.S. Capitol. President Lincoln, however, was shrewd, and he knew that Jackson had overextended himself in his dash to capture Winchester. In fact, Lincoln was making plans to trap Jackson in his precarious position in the Northern Valley, and destroy him if possible. And he was right about Jackson. Lincoln had three armies at his disposal. Union General Fremont's army was just to the southwest in the Alleghenies. Union General Irwin McDowell's army was just to the southeast, coming through the Blue Ridge with Shields' division leading. Both of these armies were in a position to cut Jackson off at Strasburg, and destroy his army before they could make it south to safety. There was also Nathaniel Banks's just-routed army uh, that was positioned north of the Potomac that could, if constituted, be used to pursue Jackson as well. However, the truth is they would be licking their wounds for some time, and they would prove no threat to Jackson. Meanwhile, in his obsession to drive Banks out of the valley, Jackson had indeed exposed himself to the very possibility of being cut off. Further, he had allowed his force to linger in the North Valley while the two Union armies began their pursuit in earnest. Now, as a side note, Lincoln at this time was acting as overall army commander. This is because he had just demoted George McClellan from this position, and Henry Halleck was yet to take over this role, just having been promoted uh, from his post in the Western Theater. Then finally, on May the 31st, in a driving rain, Jackson set his army on a dash foot race south on the valley pike towards Strasburg. With them, his men carried tons of captured supplies, literal tons, and thousands of Union prisoners in their extended wagon train. As it happened, in a shocking turn of events, Jackson's army was indeed in danger, and the predator had become prey. Also, Jackson had made a very grave and negligent error and had allowed part of his army, the famous Stonewall Brigade, in fact, to get separated from the rest of the army. They were miles behind and even in greater danger than his main army of being cut off. Jackson, however, had one more ace up his sleeve. This came in the form of Union General John Fremont. Fremont, who had previously won fame as the Great Pathfinder, had failed as a Western theater commander, and further was failing in the Alleghenies. You may recall, after the Battle of McDowell, Fremont's vanguard force under Milroy, having been beaten by Jackson's army, destroyed all the mountain passes in their rapid retreat back to the Alleghenies. Further, Jackson at the same time had sent Jed Hotchkiss with a crew of engineers to destroy any and all such mountain passes that Fremont might potentially use to get his army back into the Shenandoah Valley. Therefore, 
This, along with Fremont's general sluggishness, meant that when called upon by Lincoln to, quote, put the utmost speed to it, do not lose a minute, end quote, Fremont could not and did not answer the call. You will also recall there was a Union force coming over from the Blue Ridge from the east being led by General Shields. Somehow, inexplicably, and against all odds, Jackson's foot cavalry beat Shields to Strasburg. That was even with the Stonewall Stonewall Brigade straggling far behind the rest. Now, some historians account for this by explaining that General Shields was simply afraid. He was afraid of the now-living legend of Stonewall Jackson. He appears to have lost his nerve just as he was about to close the trap and and really, and cut off Jackson from the from his uh, approaches to the south. We'll never know precisely why or how Jackson did it, but indeed, against all odds, he was out of immediate danger again. Now, with two Union armies following cautiously on his tail, he continued south or up the valley. And as he went, his men were destroying key bridges that would have allowed the two Union armies to join forces. In fact, with help from Jed Hotchkiss's maps, by June 7th, he had skillfully positioned his army to once again defeat two separate Union armies in in detail. Jackson had placed his army on the South Fork of the Shenandoah River, controlling a key bridge between Cross Keys and Port Republic. Then again, for a moment, it appeared Jackson's wagon train would be captured and his army would be cut off by shields. Jackson had failed to secure a bridge to his rear, which exposed his army to a potential disaster, had Shields been ready to exploit this. Jackson's mistake was accounted for by, uh, is accounted for by historians due to fatigue, and also accounted for by the fact that his brilliant and vaunted cavalry commander, who normally would have been screening his movements, Turner Ashby, had been killed during a skirmish with Union forces on June 6th. Shields, however, instead of destroying the bridge and possibly capturing Jackson, wavered. Once again, indecision on the part of a Union commander had saved Jackson from calamity. He quickly addressed this mistake by securing the bridge, and rather than dwelling on his near disaster, he prepared his army to attack General Fremont at Cross Keys. Now, to set the stage, Jackson was holding two Union armies at bay on the south fork of the Shenandoah River, which at this point was very deep and rampaging. Fremont was on the north side of the river, and Shields was on the south side, and there was no way for them to cross the swift-moving river. The two could, could not coordinate because Jackson controlled the only bridge connecting the two sides at Port Republic. So, Jackson had a decision to make and his first move would be to attack Fremont at Cross Keys on the north side of the river. No other commander I can think of besides Lee would be so bold in the face of overwhelming odds. The battle began with some light skirmishing when Fremont decided rather than making use of his two-to-one manpower advantage, he would instead engage the rebels in an artillery duel 
This went on for a while inconclusively until Jackson unleashed Richard S. Ewell to take matters in the hand. Ewell then made use of Isaac Tremble's Virginia Brigade to hammer the Union left, pushing three brigades back more than a mile. Intense musketry and fighting continued through the day until Fremont finally lost his nerve and withdrew his forces back. Then, early the next morning on June the 9th, uh, Jackson transferred Ewell's force to the south side of the river and attacked Shields at Port Republic. Again, greatly outnumbered and also greatly fatigued, Jackson attacked with too small a force before he could get most of his men across the river. They were decimated by Union artillery and musketry. In fact, Confederate General Richard Taylor's 7th Louisiana Brigade, including the famed Louisiana Tigers, lost about half of his men in the fight. Then Jackson made two critical decisions. First, he ordered the remainder of Ewell's force, under Tremble, north of the river to cross over to Port Republic, uh, to the Port Republic side and burn the bridge behind them. This isolated Fremont completely on the north side, and he could, not, he could only watch the fight from this point forward. His second decision was to grab his match, map maker, Jeb Hotchkiss, and order him to gather the remainder of the Louisiana troops crossing the bridge and get them into the fight. The Louisiana troops, along with Winder's Virginians, then attacked the Union artillery position that had been pounding them all morning. The fight became intimate and brutally personal, with bayonets and clubbed muskets replacing gunfire. Eventually, the entire Union line staggered. Then it broke. The blue-coated Yankees turned and went back up the road from which they had come. Again, many Union prisoners were taken from the roads to the rear that was choked with stragglers. All the while, as this happened, Jackson's blue eyes were blazing with fury, and his men at this point started calling him Old Blue Light. Now, following their defeats, both Franklin and Shields were recalled away from the upper valley. Shields would join McClellan's attack on Richmond, and Fremont would be replaced by John Pope. In fact, soon Fremont would be completely out of the United States Army. Thus, the Great Valley Campaign was over. Historian S.C. Gwynn put it this way, There was a certain symmetry to it. The campaign, which started with a single enemy army pursuing Jackson southward, through the valley, would end with two beaten Union armies withdrawing from him in a northerly direction. Stonewall Jackson was now the most famous man in the South. With less than 17,000 troops, and sometimes far less, Jackson had taken on and routed 52,000 troops in three Union armies. He had inflicted 4,600 casualties, seized thousands of small arms, and a vast trove of Union supplies. 
and had kept more than 40,000 federal troops from joining McClellan in front of Richmond. In in five battles and many smaller engagements from March 23rd till June 9th, he had marched his men 646 miles, knocked the entire Union war plan in the Eastern Theater off balance, and had done it all at the cost of about 2,700 men. In the late spring of what of that year, he was very likely the most famous soldier in the entire world. Okay, did you enjoy my podcast? If so, please take a moment and rate and review my podcast. Meanwhile, join me next time in episode 30, in which we will see a very different side to Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. Mm-hmm.